0: Constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg.
1: Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us, and you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag BigBeaconRadio. And and today we're um, really pleased to be uh, joined by an author, strategist, facilitator, uh, Zaid Hassan. Welcome to the show, Zaid.
2: Thanks, Dave. Good to be
1: here. Yeah, and uh, you're joining us today from uh, Oxford in the UK by the miracle of modern uh, telecommunications. And and, um, we want to spend some time in the show uh, exploring your uh, recent uh, book, The Social Labs Revolution. But before we do that... We like to get to know our guests a little bit better and and on a more personal note. And so, um, you've you've had a, a very interesting uh, career uh, that's led in um, led in different and unusual directions. But let's go back in the time machine. What what were some of the early mm-hmm. influences that put you on your current path?
2: Well, I think um, I think probably the earliest uh, uh, influences moving from the UK to. To India, so we moved when I was seven years old from London uh, to Bombay, and spent four years in in India. And I think, um, you know, my my parents wanted us to to see quote the rest of the world or see the world outside the UK. So that was, uh, I think, one of the most formative, uh, earliest experiences I had. And moving to the subcontinent uh, with all its myriad challenges and experiences was uh, a big a big part of it
1: yeah you talk and you, you tell some of those those stories in the beginning of of the, um, the book and 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 actually the show we're very interested in in um what in a whole new engineer Mark Somerville and I call unleashing experiences where uh-huh. people kind of have the courage to go your own way and and your background's actually particularly interesting because you you uh, proudly list your your uh, work in a physics and computer science degree at brunel but actually mm-hmm. you never completed completed that degree what what unleashed you to kind of walk away from that and then go on to this beautiful career that you've had so far <laughs>
2: Good question. Um, well, I, I think uh I think one of the things one of my experiences of schooling in general was basically yeah. being bored and being constricted, if you like, or constrained to these very kind of narrow <clears throat> subject areas. And um I think particularly at school I had a couple of teachers who were really sympathetic to that and gave us a, a bit more free reign. And then when I arrived at university, um, you know, physics and the science natural sciences based degrees are very um <clears throat> there's a lot to cover. Yeah. Uh, so, so for example, I have a twin. I have a twin sister who was doing politics and economics at the same time, and she had, I think, you know, four or five hours of lectures a week, and we had thirty-six hours of lectures a week, and then fifteen hours of private study. So there wasn't really a lot of space to do anything else other than what was in the uh, in the very narrow curriculum. And you know, one of my questions studying physics was always, <clears throat> why are we not learning about the history of, of our subject? And you know, the history of physics as a as a field is. Um, is quite striking when you think about the Second World War and so on. And I was always kind of told, well, this isn't a philosophy of science degree. And I always, <clears throat> that always just bothered me and struck me as very odd that, you know, we're, we're studying and learning how to um, become members of this profession that has a very kind of, you know, both bloody and kind of um, um, glorious history, but we just aren't taught anything about it. We're not really exposed to, and, and we don't discuss the implications of the work that we are being taught to do. Uh, and that, I, I couldn't really reconcile that um, and then you know the then the final story is i tried to I tried to take modules of other subjects and was just told that I couldn't because there was no space in the curriculum and you know why would I want to do that anyway and I just thought I can't do this
1: yeah, so I'm curious so uh, and and you know, and this this ties in with some of the changes that we hope to see as as part of the the intellectual stance of the program and and uh you know the sense of being bored and you know certainly in um in science and engineering, being almost totally constrained with very few options, very little choice, which we now know goes against um, modern mo- modern theories of human motivation. There's very little possibility of intrinsic mm-hmm. motivation if if uh, everything is being done for for someone else for right. uh, some other reason. So, but. But what, what's there? There's a positive side to this. I mean, you you've kind of gone off and done these very interesting things. So were there were there people in your life who um, occur, encouraged you along the way, or, or I guess it can some of this can just come from within. You were bored. You went off and did it on your own. What were well, what what uh, permitted you to kind of have the pretty cool career that you've been having here?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the one of the um, fortuitous uh, uh, things about my career, and also just um, the transition from university was that I, uh, because I was doing a physics degree we and a computer science degree, we were taught um, HTML and we were taught no. um, the Internet, and the web basically didn't exist then, and... Um, so I I was looking for kind of um summer work and I found a job where I was working for a speech recognition company but essentially what they wanted was they wanted someone to help them understand the internet and what does this all mean and how do we get online um and I did a couple of freelance gigs as well where I was freelancing as a as essentially as a web designer and uh, and much to my shock there were people who were willing to pay me a day rate to do that work so in some ways the transition from university out was very easy because I had a I had a job to go to and one of the people that was really um, uh, uh, really an influence was the owner of this startup that I went and essentially dropped out into and worked for where he basically said, you know, come and work for me anytime you want. So in some ways it was a relatively easy decision because I had a job to drop into. Yeah. And, uh, and I was looking at my colleagues who were all kind of struggling with work and, and, you know, people who were graduating ahead of me trying to find jobs and they couldn't find anything. Um, so in some ways it was a bit like, well, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And, and, and in some ways with a physics degree, Career options in some ways are finance, defense, or further education, and I didn't really want to do any of those things.
1: Yeah. No, they're very you know, very interesting. In many ways, kind of ahead of the curve, and there are more and more people doing that now, and, and uh, higher ed's been slow to adapt, uh, if, if at all, in many cases. So let's let's turn to your let's turn to your uh, 2014 book you in 2014 you published the uh-huh. Social Labs Revolution a new approach to solving our most complex challenges what what was the motive you know r- writing a book's a pretty big job uh, what motivated you to yeah. take that on
2: Well I mean I've kind of been doing this work for um, 10 years almost 10 12 years at that point yeah. and and part of it was um, a desire to write down what I'd learned so the book is very much practice oriented and practice based. And what I wanted to do was essentially say, okay, what have I learned doing this work over 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 a decade plus, and um, can I codify some of that, and can I share some of that uh, learning in in an effort, if you like, to mature at the wider field.
1: Hmm. And and yeah, and, and so and what was the path? Um there was, there must have been a transitional path from web designer into um doing social lab right, and right. uh you know the the kind of work yeah. that that you um did at rios and and before that at general
2: yeah i mean the the it was quite an interesting transition in that when I was working um during the dot com boom one of the things that was most interesting for me was what are the social implications of what's unfolding at the moment? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was this sort of dot-com boom frenzy going on at the time. Yep. And there weren't that many people asking questions about the social implications. So, you know, we did, we did, uh, I did an exercise with um, a scenario planning exercise looking at the future of the industry, working with one of the universities, the University of Westminster here in, in, in London. And that led me, if you like, to um, just asking more questions about the implications. And then I got this um, completely random invitation to something called the State of the World Forum, which was something convened by Mikhail Gorbachev, and it was in San Francisco. So I got this kind of invitation from some friends of friends, who said, "Hey, you should you should come to this." And the State of the World Forum was essentially a gathering of um, the public sector and civil society leaders and some corporate leaders. But it was sort of five or six hundred people that were focused, if you like, on on what I would now call addressing complex. Social challenges, and it completely blew my mind to be in this environment where there were six or seven hundred people, and there were people who just worked on worked on things. You know, they worked on AIDS, they worked on education, they worked on poverty alleviation. And for me, in some ways, I had never really had, um, you know, a clear a clear view of that field, or, or a clear view that that was even possible. So for me, it was um, it was just a, an amazing awakening, an amazing kind of um, introduction to. Just the idea that you could actually do this for a living
1: yeah nice and and um so so you go to that and you get and then you get involved in this in this work um and our this show is 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 cares a lot about change processes and 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 effective change, and so we've had people like Adam Cain who you used to work with, Ed Schein, John Cotter, guys like that who have fairly different perspectives mm-hmm. on change and their personal approaches to change, corporate approaches to change, planning approaches to change. What um wh- where does your book fit in in the landscape of uh, thinking about change?
2: Well, it's interesting when I when I first started talking to um my publisher about it, he said um, well, so social labs are a are a technique, right? They're sort of a process or a tool. And I said, N- no, they're not. And, um, and you know, um, they were like, well, what is it then? And I said, well, technically a lab is just a space, right? Um, like a chemistry lab or a physics lab. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, you're not proposing to write a book about a space, are you? Because that doesn't sound very interesting. Um, you know, so, so the way I would locate, um, if you like, the, the lab's work is that it's it 's essentially a practice um, and the way to think about practice is if we if we use an analogy with cooking, you can think about cooking as a as a practice so when you think about cooking, you have ingredients, you have you know tools, knives and spatulas and frying pans you have processes like frying and baking um, and you know you put all of those th- things together in a space called a kitchen sometimes, and you produce things that people want to eat but cooking, if you like, as a practice only comes together with all of those elements and in some ways. You know, there is no way you can learn how to do it other than by doing it. You can't read a book for two years and basically go, "Okay, I now know how to cook. I'm going to cook the most wonderful meal for my family, and they're going to love it." That's just not going to happen. So, the way to understand labs is, if you like, and whatever label you want to put on it, there is an underlying practice that brings together tools and processes and techniques and ingredients, um, pre, what we would call preconditions. Um, and the idea is, you know, you're trying to come up with, you're trying to come up with solutions to these challenges. And um, and really, the proof is: Does anyone want them? Does anyone want to eat them? If you like to use yeah. that vocabulary, so I would say it's a practice, and you know that practice is comprised of many different processes and tools and techniques. And, and you know, the practice is that you shamelessly take them from wherever it works, basically.
1: Yeah, and and of course there are, you know there are many. Um I think I think one of the things, one of the currents in our times, is the movement away from things that are the the kind of formal ways of knowing. That colleges and universities have largely been about two things that are more practice oriented. So, for example, the 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 meteoric rise of of executive coaching as a practice, and mm-hmm. and, and people having coaches to help them become uh, better leaders of more complex organizations, is 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 uh, is one example of that. So 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 I love the I love the cooking metaphors, but to help our listeners a little bit, what is you know what is a social lab a little bit in a little bit more detail.
2: Right. So I would would say there are three elements to a social lab, or three elements that comprise um, a social lab. And one of them is that uh, the people that are being impacted by the challenge do the work. Um, And when I say do the work, I mean actually make decisions rather than just be consulted. So this is a social part of the social lab, um, which is who is actually doing the work. Are you talking about real stakeholders, real um, people on the ground that are impacted by a particular challenge? So that would be the first characteristic, um, and and that degree of diversity, if you like, we're looking for is what I would call vertical diversity, not horizontal diversity. So horizontal diversity might be white collar diversity, where you, know, you have an economist working with an anthropologist, um, mm. whereas vertical diversity would be that you have, you know, a nurse who's kind of at the coal face of the healthcare system, working with a policy, a healthcare policy person, or a doctor or clinical staff, um, working with people who are, you know, service users or patients. So the idea there is that you're looking for a a certain degree of diversity and it's very, very hard to make that diversity work, but that's part of the challenge, if you like. Then the second part is essentially that um, the practice, what what you're practicing is essentially experimental. You're trying things out and you're seeing whether they work. And of course, when you're experimenting, you cannot experiment on people, which is why the criteria of of social diversity is so important, that the people who are going to be impacted by your experiments really have to to be part of the decision-making process. but but at its simplest it's trial and error you're trying something out and you're seeing what works and based on what works you're going to advance that further and develop that further Um, and then the final part is that you know Doing both those things takes a lot of effort, and it's a lot of time and energy and money and so on. And what you really want to do is you want to be um focused, if you like, on the root causes of the challenge you're dealing with. So what I would kind of call being systemic, which is you're looking at the wider system, but you're really looking at the causal determinants and drivers of the situation in, in, in a hope to essentially disrupt them or, or impact them. And if you put those three things together, so if you put the social... The social characteristic, if you like, of the team doing the work, the experimental nature of the practice, and the stance that you're trying to deal with things systemically at a root cause. Those three things, if you like, constitute what I would call um, a social lab. Or if you wanted to broaden the lens, you know, you could just call that an effective strategy for addressing complex challenges. That if you can bake those three things into your strategy or your response, you know, again, call it what you want, but those essentially would be core characteristics of uh, of what I would call an effective response.
1: Yeah, and, and and some of the things that you know led to the starting of this radio program, and and some of the things that uh, are now going on in the in. In higher ed transformation have have some of those elements so for example in trying to bring about change in higher education usually it's the kind of horizontal diversity you're talking about we'll have a professor from mechanical Mm -hmm. engineering and physics and math but there are no students in the room Mm -hmm. there are no parents in the room there are no there are no no uh, people uh, that hire that hire the uh, the students that get produced by the um, or Mm that go that move through the industrial process of, of higher education so um it's and, and it seems like the kinds of things that you're talking about are important in the in in the context that we talk about here and I, and I want to get more into this, into the book in in some detail but before the break I guess i'm I'm curious so right you know writing a book is a big undertaking and I, I know when I've in starting, I, I always start off overconfident that I'm just going to sit down and write the things I know, and then I get into the project, and there's all this stuff that I learn as part of the process of of writing. And so I'm curious, what were some of the you know the big surprise uh, surprises or things that you learned in the writing of the book that you that you didn't know um, before you started the project? Well, I mean, the
2: the, the first conversation I ever had with my um, publisher was astonishing in some ways, and, and I'm very grateful to it. But, you know, one of the things he said to me is he said, look, before we before we get into all this, um, I know you know this, but I just want to check. You know no one's going to read your book, right? And you know, <laughs> I was on the phone, and I looked at the phone, and I said, but, but Steve, why are we publishing a book? And he said, don't get me wrong. People want the book. They're just not going to read the book because nobody reads these days. And I was a bit shocked. Well, what does that mean? And he said, "Well, you know you've got to pay attention to how you're delivering the message um in ways other than people having to read the book, such as the cover and the strap line and how you talk about it and so on and you know in some ways, he was obviously exaggerating but but it was it was quite a shock to basically shift my perspective from what's important is the writing." Uh, to what's important is the message and how we communicate the message um, as clearly as possible through every means at our disposal, not just the writing. Um, so there's this illusion, I think, that the writing is the most important part and everything else is just sort of, you know, a little bit extra on top. Um, but that was a real shift. I mean, you know, it took me two weeks to sort of assimilate that message um, so there was that. And I think the second thing that I found difficult, which is different, as you say, from just sitting down and kind of banging it out, was I wanted something that was um, in some ways academically rigorous or rigorous to a certain extent in terms of the theoretical framework and, and you know, the framework and the paradigm that uh, the book is trying to communicate. And that was difficult. It was very difficult to get that right and not to... You know, not to not to skip over bits that were too difficult or or too challenging, but trying to get something that was rigorous in in nature, not simply anecdotal in a series of stories of, you know, I did this and I did that. Um, so that was, I think, those two things were were difficult for me, which was, you know, you know, this transition from the writing is all that matters to the whole package is what matters, and then this um, this question of rigor, if you like.
1: Nice, yeah. So no, thanks for. Um... Sharing that, and I think you know one of the things we want to do um, in the next segment is to dig into it um, uh, a little bit more into some of the um, some of that rigor and 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 as well as some of the packaging and stories that that you tell. so let's do that after the break. This is big Beacon radio with our, our special guest Zaid Hassan uh, and um, in the next segment, we're going to start talking about uh, some of the key elements of the book.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645, contact him at deg at 3joy.com, or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fifty-seven ninety. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: And uh, welcome back to uh, Big Beacon Radio. And uh, we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. And um, and if you'd like to call in and uh, uh, talk to our guest, uh, you can call in at 866-472-5790, or you can email your questions to deg at bigbeacon.org. So, uh, Zaid, before the break, we were kind of talking about why you wrote the book and and uh, your experience in writing it, and um, and before we go on, you know, what's been the what's been the reaction? The book's out, been out for a while. What's been the reaction to the book? Uh, what what sector seem most interested in it?
2: Uh, I, I guess I'm you know I'm always I'm always surprised when people uh, read books and go through kind of the the effort which has got a lot of work to go through um, a book that in some ways is fairly specialist. But the reaction has been really good, and there's been a lot of interest um, from the public sector. A lot of interest from the foundation world um, mm. in in the ideas in the book and just figuring out you know how to bring this stuff home. Really, um, the other thing that's that's been a really uh, a really good thing and a pleasant surprise is that it's sort of spawned a, a community of people that are already doing this work. So they didn't get created if you like by the book, but essentially became a bit more visible as a result of um, the book. And so that's been really good and i think you know in some ways the success of this work is dependent on uh, a peer group in the community uh, around the world uh, identifying with the work and doing the work so that's been really amazing to see
1: yeah i had the chance to uh, go to to uh, toronto as part of uh, an engineering change lab meeting that adam kahin was uh, facilitating and mm-hmm. so it's it, it's mm-hmm. interesting to see these processes and in, in work and it And it's interesting to, you know, so who 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 would think that a a group of engineers would sort of embrace um, these ideas fairly early? uh, You know, they're fairly early adopters, really, in a certain in a certain way. So that's that's kind of cool. So uh, so let's talk about Mm -hmm. the book. So you you know you start the the book with a chapter called "The Perfect Storm of Complexity." You take sort of a complexity science view of change as being emergent and requiring adaptation. Why? why are these ideas important to the, to the notions of, of a social, social lab? Well, I mean, uh, I think,
2: I think two things, perhaps because I haven't, I haven't entirely, um, I wasn't entirely unaffected by my, my physics degree, but I think one of the, one of the things I see out in the world is that there is a lot of noise around the issue of change and complexity in that people use these words um, with increasing frequency to mean very different things. So I think, I think rooting, if you like, the ideas uh, and the work we're doing in real phenomena and in real science is important in the sense that, you know, what is our best understanding of what we're seeing happening out in the world and where do we get that understanding from? And I think, you know, the natural sciences, um, complexity theory, chaos theory, and so on has a huge role to play in that they can inform our understanding of what we're seeing out in the world. And if we're operating on the basis of that understanding, I think our strategies are stronger.
1: Hmm. Well, and and you know, it's interesting the number of people in the area that that do come from a natural science science background. Having on on the other hand, we also live at a time of great bounty in the social sciences and neurobiology, and so we're we're actually kind of living in a golden age where it it's a matter of there are lots of low hanging fruit to pick from lots of fields to do this kind of work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, so the, so some of the facility, like you said, there's lots of stuff to grab from. So, like, you want uh, good, good ways of listening. Well, they're, they're, um, they're good ways to borrow from, say, um, psychotherapy and and coaching uh, for listen, deep listening and and, uh, empathy and so forth. Or you want, you want to talk about, um, um, motivation we've got nice motivation theories of motivation or we've got you know speech acts philosophy that helps us understand the structure of speech we've got we've got lots of stuff actually that's Im- right. that's important to this mm-hmm. yeah okay so yeah no
2: i totally i totally agree
1: yeah and so and, and um anyway so um all right so you know one of the things the uh, as the book goes on you t- you tackle some of the obstacles to uh thinking in this in this way and one of the obstacles is our a, a lot of our normal thinking around organizations and and um taking action in the world are our notions of planning mm-hmm. um, that we we plan stuff and there's this causal chain that we can predict and and stuff comes out the way we plan why why is why is planning not such a great idea for for wicked problems, as you call them?
2: Well, I mean, just to just to, I mean, I'm going to stereotype a little bit, but the way to think sure. about um, planning is if we think about the culture of planning and we think about you know what kind of culture of response do we have when we talk about strategic planning and to kind of stereotype that culture a little bit is um, it's almost neo Soviet in its orientation. It's almost that you know you have a group of a group of men, typically, um, typically you know. Um, Over 40 white sitting in Moscow, basically making decisions about what needs to happen in the country or, you know, around a particular issue. And they make the decisions. They're the planners and they issue these diktats sort of, you know, down, down the line. And, um, you know, someone somewhere gets a piece of paper that says, this is what you're going to do. And, um, it doesn't necessarily make any sense on the ground, but if you don't do it, you get sent to Siberia and that's the deal. So, so in some ways, um, planning based cultures are, a little bit Neo-Soviet and to a greater or lesser extent in their orientation to how they interact with the world. And, and the crux of that interaction is that you know, um, they simplify things in order to make decisions because dealing with the complexity of phenomena and the complexity of reality is just too much for a very small group of people sitting far above the ground, if you like, to do. So in some ways, what it does is it simplifies our responses. You know, you come up with a plan, you say what you're going to do every quarter, or what inputs and outputs you need. Um, but the, the the essential characteristic of planning is essentially control. It allows us to control yeah. our inputs and our outputs. Um, and and that culture of response is very badly suited to uh, complexity because situations are changing so rapidly on the ground that you know by the time you you. You figure out what your plan is, write it down, formalise it, and decide what you want to do, and issue your diktats, The situation has changed on the ground, and um, and in some ways, you know, the 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 a planning-based culture is it, it's a it's a divergent it's divergent from reality. It's kind of heading heading into this space that I kind of call Flatland, which is essentially you know anything that you can fit into a, a Microsoft product. So if it if it, it works on pay on a you know in a Word file or in a PowerPoint document, but reality is not. Flatland reality is three dimensional, you know, it's it's blood and guts and it moves and it changes. So the culture if you like of planning is orientated towards Flatland, not to the real world.
1: Well, and and I mean yes, and and it and it also has this fairly strong assumption about things are predictable or or we're going if they're not predictable, we're going to pretend that they are. And and there's a sense in which we need to um, that knowing and, and you and another point that you make is that that expertise is an important part of these kinds of cultures and that that expertise also is problematic when it comes to the kinds of nasty problems that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Why is what is yeah. it you know, what is it about but what is it about expertise? I guess it's the same it's the it's part of the same story isn't it I guess it, it's, so expertise is is fine but it's usually too narrow to deal with the kind of breadth in, in the problem is that is that the is that the issue or what else is there to to the problems with expertise yeah, I, mean,
2: I I think I think one of the ways of thinking about how uh, planning based cultures work is that you know, the muscles required to do the work of planning are um, is expertise. That is the muscle that actually you need to exercise. So, you know, if you're sitting in Moscow and you wanna you wanna issue your diktats, what you're doing is you're using um, the muscle of expertise and basically analysis to tell you what to do and you trust that expertise. So you give that expertise a degree of authority and um, and you trust the expertise to give you an analysis that allows you to make a decision and tells you what to do. So you cannot have um, strategic planning based cultures without expertise and without, it, without a huge reliance on expertise. Um, and you know the, the 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 issue again with expertise is that we live in a world where things are changing so rapidly. So you know the amount of information in the world is said to be doubling every couple of years. That um, expertise in itself cannot keep keep up with, if you like, the the breadth of the changes and the developments that we're seeing in society. It just can't. It's impossible to do that. Um, so in some ways, um, you know, expertise gives us a g- degree of comfort as to as to in a belief that we're actually we have a grip on the challenge that we're facing, but it doesn't in Um And, you know, the analogy I would kind of use again is that um, the way expertise and, and, you know, the authorities, if you like, work is, it's a little bit like someone saying, you know, I want to win the lottery. And in the U.K., the, the national lottery is, is six digits. You know, you pick six numbers, and the odds of winning the lottery are 14 million to one. Now, it's a little bit like expertise, you know, uh, someone in authority saying to an expert, look, I want to hire you to help me win the lottery. Um, But I don't like these odds, so I want the odds to be 50%. And the expert basically says, well, the odds are 14 million to 1. And, you know, authority says, well, I don't like those odds, so make it 50%. And it's like, well, if you're going to play this game, these are the odds, and there's nothing I can do about it. And what what you're told as an expert is that, you know, I want you to construct a narrative that tells me that the odds are 50%, regardless of what they actually are. And your only option is to either go along with that or you quit, basically, and you say, I'm not going to do this because you're really crazy. And so the, the, the complexity, in, if you like, presents us with this underlying risk profile that, you know, there is inherent risk when you're dealing with situations that are complex, and you can't really eliminate that risk unless you decide to play a different game. So the question becomes, well, are you going to deal with reality or are you going to deal with a fictional reality in which, in which the risks are a lot, you know, a, a lot less significant than they actually are? And that's the challenge, and expertise in some ways is put in a very difficult position um, by authority when it's basically contracted, if you like, to try and come up with responses to these challenges.
1: Yes, and and, and I think there's and going back to the, the, what you were saying about the information um, doubling every, every two years. One of the things that the web does is it isn't. It's an expertise. Um, leveler of a sort you know a 14 year old with a laptop can read the same papers as any mm-hmm. expert and econ- an economist or engineer or physicist and and we're seeing more and more young people you know from from our educational stance and in the show we see more and more young people doing that and and uh, taking charge of their own education it seems to me that that's also happening elsewhere. That there are people that see the world more clearly than, say, some of our public figures, and and they're using mm-hmm. the information that's out there um, in in ways that the the quote experts are not able to because uh, they're not wedded to the to a particular discipline or a particular way of knowing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's this um, there's this famous quote, I think, from Suzuki Roshi, which is that in the, in the in the mind of the expert, there are a few possibilities, whereas in the mind of the beginner, there are many. Um, yes. And I would say that what we're trying to do or what we need to do is we need to figure out how expertise can partner with um, people that have different forms of expertise. So, you know, if you're an expert in child malnutrition, that doesn't mean you know what the situation in a particular village or a particular state in a particular country is, because you technically understand the notion of malnutrition. So I would say what we're trying to do is not abolish expertise or in some ways, um, um, you know, reject it, but we're actually seeking to put it in its place, which is in partnership with people that have, you know, lived experiences, that have different experiences and different forms of knowledge than if you like purely epistemological or uh, textbook learning, which in which has its place. And I think, you know, um, we can't reject that. I think we have to figure out how to harness it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, in the book, you give a number of examples of social labs that you've worked on and others have worked on. Maybe for our listeners, can you are there one or two of those that you can talk about to help make this a little bit more concrete for them?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's probably worth saying is that. Um, the labs I talk about in the book are uh, what I would call first-generation labs. So there were some of the early experiments, if you like, or the early dishes, if you like, that we cooked. Um, and and the field as a whole is is still very immature. So we're not talking about a field that has been around for 50 years or 100 years. This yeah. is a field that, you know, at best is 15 years old. So in some ways, you know, we have a very long way to go. And I think um, I always get asked, you know, well, you know, what's the perfect example of a lab? And I don't really have the perfect example because we're still – maturing the field. So with that kind of caveat, um, one of the pieces of work that I was involved in um, was around child malnutrition in India. And the question was, you know, how do we address this issue with 100 million malnourished kids in India? We, have, we, we, we had a situation or we have a situation where um, the number of kids that are malnourished is going up. Um, there's a huge amount of effort being put into addressing this challenge. So India runs some of the world's largest Development projects in the world to address this issue, and the situation was basically getting worse. So that's kind of the context of the work. Um, and then, you know, we launched a, a lab um, in uh, 2006. Uh, called Bhavisha Alliance, and Bhavisha means future in Sanskrit, and, and essentially it was um, it was a partnership between civil society, the private sector, and the public sector that brought together actors from government, civil society, and corporations in India to try and come up with a series of um, responses, if you like, or prototypes that would um, uh, that would shift this issue of child malnutrition. And you know, our focus was in one state in India, which was Maharashtra, uh, but it has a population of eighty million people, so. You know, it's a big, it's a big state. It's a country state, if you like. Um, yep. And uh, that that piece of work went on for six years and had significant impacts on malnutrition, um, severe malnutrition in in Maharashtra. That would be an example of, you know, uh, a, a lab, if you like, that um, a first-generation lab that made an attempt to kind of tackle these challenges, if you like, at scale.
1: Nice. And so um, we've got a couple of minutes left before our our next break. Um, you, you, know, you list a number of requirements for the kinds of st- systemic action that, that social labs are mm-hmm. meant to take. What, what are those?
2: Well, I, I think um, one of the things that is just interesting about you know, the question of addressing complex social challenges is that there's no sh- shortage of effort. So it's not as if you know, people aren't working on these um, issues. Um, so we spend huge amounts of money, time, talent, energy. And one of the things that I was trying to do in terms of figuring out what is effective is to say, well, you know, when we see efforts that are more or less effective, um, what are some of the characteristics of those, uh, of those uh, actions, if you like? So, you know, for example, um, is there any conflict? Uh, do we see any conflict between actors in, in the room or are we seeing consensus? And typically, if you're seeing consensus, what has happened is that you've abolished the conflict outside the room. Uh, and you haven't brought it into the room so that's a sign if you like that you haven't got sufficient uh, diversity in your team. You've brought together people who broadly agree with each other and uh, and what that does is it, it creates a, an atmosphere, if you like, of groupthink where everyone broadly agrees with what to, what needs to happen, what what to do, what the nature of the challenge is, but they don't necessarily have any new ideas about what to do. Um, so so one of the phrases I kind of use in my book is I talk about how how you know movement requires friction. So we need to build friction into these teams in order to move because if you don't have that friction you're spinning your wheels basically so you know that would be that would be an example of a characteristic that you would look for and you know i talk about several other characteristics so, you know is the work happening at a single level so you know um, is it happening at the level of <clears throat> at the level of policymakers or is it happening completely at the grassroots is it happening completely in the treetops um, So to what level is the work happening at and you know, this requirement, if you like, of vertical diversity is that the work has to happen at multiple levels. It has to have a footprint on the ground, but it also, you also have to have an overview, if you like, a strategic view of the wider landscape that you're working in. Um, but those would be some of the examples of, you know, characteristics that you would look for uh, if you're trying to assess whether an action is um, being more or less effective uh, in terms of addressing a complex challenge.
1: Yeah, and I want to, in the next segment, I want to... Um talk about this fairly practically so how you know so if somebody wants to go uh-huh. uh, do this sort of thing uh-huh. what uh-huh. what can they do so let's let's uh, let's go there uh, after after the break this is uh, big beacon radio with our special guest uh, zaid hassan and and in the next section we're gonna talk about uh how you can do this at home
0: the boardroom to you voice america business network do you want greater success in bringing change to your university college department or classroom are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change would you like to boost your own academic business or technical career let david e goldberg of three joy associates help David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645, contact him at deg at 3joy.com, or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790 Again, that's 1 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: Yeah, and welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And uh, get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at your institution at 3joy.com. And um, we're here with uh, Zaid Hassan. Um, author of The Social Labs Revolution. And in the last segment, we were talking about you know this a little bit more practically. And in the book, there are a number of um, how-tos. Maybe we can't get through all seven of them, but what are some of the, the key how-tos of uh, making a, a, a social lab?
2: Well, I mean, one of the things that I find um, missing, if you like, when people are attempting to, to either um, constitute, if you like, a social lab or come up with a strategic response to a complex challenge are what could be thought of as preconditions, so preconditions for action. And um, there are a couple of preconditions. So one is just being clear on what the challenge is that you want to address. So when I say that, what I mean is, that, you know, are you trying to address a challenge of a particular scale of a city or an institution or a country, um, you know, how many people do you think are going to be impacted, and so on. So often you find that people can't actually tell you clearly what the challenges they want to address, which might seem surprising, but it's actually quite difficult to formulate a challenge which has issues of scale and time and scope um, uh, encapsulated in it. So that's one thing. And then, you know, what resources do you need, which is a function of the challenge? And so in my book, I, I joke a little bit about the World Cup problem where someone calls us up and says, you know, uh, I want your help winning the World Cup. And you say, well, what resources do you have? And they say, well, you know, we can put one person on it a day a week, and we don't have any money. Um, but that would be an example where resources, if you like, are mismatched. Um, uh, there's a mismatch between the challenge you want to address and resources. So grounding, if you like, what you're doing in, in what resources you do have available. Um and then, you know, the third one would be um, who are the people that you need to address the challenge. So if we're trying to meet this characteristic or criteria, if you like, of vertical diversity, then who would need to be involved in actually addressing that challenge? And then the final thing is um, uh, something I call strategic direction, which is, you know, do you have some sense of what direction to take in order to address your challenge? So if you're dealing with, you know, youth unemployment, for example, do you have some sense that actually entrepreneurship is the answer or the entrepreneurship is the direction we want to go in, or is it formal education, that we're actually trying to get people into formal education as a response to youth unemployment? So I would say, you know, the starting point would be that can you can you try and get those um, preconditions in place, and can you get the grips of those preconditions before you actually start doing anything? And if you like, the preconditions are like the ingredients for, you know, when you want to cook something, right? Like, you need to assemble the ingredients before you start cooking. Okay. So I would say that those are some of the things. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe just one other thing to add here is that if you uh, – people often look at kind of social labs and go, well, these are for large sort of, you know, these pan-galactic challenges that you're dealing with. But I would say that you could actually run a lab at any scale. Um, and one interesting scale that I'm really curious about and, and I'm keen to work on is the level of the school. So, you know, we have physics lab and chemistry lab and biology lab in a school. Well, what would social lab in a school look like where the kids actually got together and went to social lab, you know, during the day as one of their classes? And what they did in social lab was actually figure out how to tackle a real-world challenge that they're facing. So if the challenge is mental health or bullying or something that's actually practically happening around them, then how do they learn how to deal with that challenge through running a social lab, if you like? And, you know, that would be an example of a certain scale of social lab, which is not like global or national, not requiring hundreds of millions or millions of dollars to address, but something that is kind of tight, pragmatic, and you know people are really learning how to how to tackle something.
1: And that was, you know, and there was something of that in in the effort that uh, we mounted at the University of Illinois and the Illinois Foundry for Innovation and Engineering Education, where we brought students in as freshmen and the. Actually, the the challenge that was posed to them is to take response more responsibility for their education and in a direction that was motivating to them. So we had different teams aligned with different aspirations of the the students. But we framed, I mean, the metaphor we were using was was not one of a laboratory, but more of an incubator of of that. But I, there are many similarities to the things that you're talking about. And but as you say, the the scale wasn't pangalactic but the aim was actually beyond the small group of students that were 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 mm-hmm. part of that and and this all raises the 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 question about to what extent have have say formal social labs uh, been used or, or are being used in in education or you know in particular interest to this program higher education mm-hmm
2: yeah i I think there's there's definitely an emerging movement um in in the in the university space if you like um, mm-hmm. where there's a desire if you like to bring in some practical um, problem solving um, into the space so you know uh one of the places that I do a bit of work with is the California College of arts um, and they have a, a master's program um in interaction design, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to make the social lab which runs across three semesters the space, if you like, where students actually are applying all of the things they're learning in their classes. So, you know, if they're learning ethnographic approaches in one class or they're learning about, you know, user interface design, then then how does that apply to a real-world practical challenge that they do? So I think there's this movement, you know, I'm involved in um, a couple of different universities um, around the world that are trying to do this and trying to figure out how to incorporate, if you like, the labs-based approach um into what they do. Um, and, you know, I, I came across kind of a phrase um, um, that a, a colleague of mine, a guy called Jeff Mulgan, who does a lot of work in the lab space, basically talks about challenge-driven universities, um, where universities are actually uh, tackling global problems and using the resources that they have in order to do this. And students are basically learning about the world and learning skills and capacities through working on these um, these uh, these, challenge, uh, these challenges if you like that we, we obviously are all of us are facing as a society so I think the movement which again is very 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 nascent um, yeah. and is not happening everywhere is to actually figure out how universities can you know if you like come out of the ivory tower come back to the ground and, and bring all of the resources and talent and skills and capacities that they are uh, 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 that they have to bring to bear on these challenges
1: yeah, and and, you know, this raises a, a question, you know, universities are an interesting blend. There is a hierarchy to them, um, and, and school systems is, you know, well, K-12 school systems are similar. There's a hierarchy to them. And then there's also, especially in universities, a sense of anarchy, uh, you know, fact, you know, um, you can tell a faculty member anything, but you can't tell them much. And, and so there's a sense mm-hmm. that, um. There's a the wickedness of them in the anarchy and and the conflict that goes on, but then there's also this hierarchical piece, and we have other techniques for, um, you know, corporate corporate change methods uh, been fairly effective, a la John Cotter and others, you know, the, to uh, take mm-hmm. an organization that will respond to uh, to hierarchy in in, in some way and and in in bringing about fairly substantial. Uh, changes of business that are not just little little tweaks that a normal bureaucracy could handle. So um uh, how do you, is is there a is there a I mean I I have a sense that there's a blending yeah. here that needs to be done that hasn't yeah. hasn't been done but what what what's your take?
2: Well, I mean, I I I wouldn't use the word anarchy to describe what happens in universities even though I understand what you're talking about in some ways that sure. that, that to me is um, you know, that, that's a little bit unfair to the anarchists, in a sense. Um, but you know what? What I kind of see happening in universities is that we have a space, if you like, that is very, very structured, and yes. um, and a structure across these, you know, these, if you like, ancient and 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 touchingly out of date epistemological boundaries that don't really make any sense today. So in a sense, within those boundaries, there's a huge amount of anarchy and there's, you know, or a huge amount of um, freedom, if you like. Um, But the problem is the incentive structures that people have within universities really disincentivize them to engage with um, reality on the ground, right? So, you know, peer-reviewed papers, funding sources, both of those things essentially encourage um, academics to, to, if you like, to hew kind of to a path that really takes them away from doing work on the ground. And, you know, I had this experience, last year where i did six months of work on a feasibility study working with you know one of the major universities of the world and um you know we were trying to engage this university to figure out whether there was an appetite for them to really kind of get behind addressing uh, a complex challenge in this case around youth um unemployment and you know there was we just couldn't make it work and we couldn't make it work you know because of the incentive structures in the, in the university that just discouraged people from undertaking the work, so you know there was resources, there was money um everything was in place other than other than the university getting behind it, and they just couldn't do it and we met with everybody in the university we met with you know vice chancellors and deans and you know professors, and we just couldn't couldn't get it to work and I think that is an indication if you like, of how difficult it is for the universities and the university system that we have, which is you know, fairly common around the world um, in some ways to actually get behind um, what, you know, Jeff would call kind of the challenge-driven approach. Um, on the other hand, the newer universities and universities like CCA, which are really vocational and private, you know, they have a bit more freedom, if you like, than than the traditional kind of red brick universities to structure themselves differently and try something out. Um, differently. so I see a couple of universities you know um you know I did some work with um, um, um the new school in new york um Babson college in in boston you know c c a so there I think there are a couple of places um that really are trying to get their heads around how this could happen and mm-hmm. you know, there's there 's also places like Harvard and so on that are trying to get their their heads around it, but in some ways what they 're suffering from is the innovative dilemma they have something that works, and abandoning something that works for something that it seems uncertain and unsure is just a very big leap for them to make.
1: Well, but you know, corporate approaches to change, a la Carter will suggest that you need something of a dual operating system in in the transition. That you have to create some white space, so sure. you, um, so you right. segment and and um, and then so it seems to me that then some of the principles of of talking to everybody, um, you know, and and the kind of diversity that that you need in a social lab are are, are counterproductive i mean you, so you if you want to say, if you're trying mm-hmm. to create an outpost of this other thing and demonstrate that it works you sort of need right. the you need the believers and actually your your book the story about the split in that uh, that led from generon to um to mm-hmm. rios is actually yeah. interesting because that was sort of along those lines there was there was the believers with intention that uh, mm-hmm. uh... joseph Jaworski was talking about and there was this kind of other this other way of bringing everyone everyone to the party mm-hmm. as part of the conversation that seems to me a, to be a fundamental distinction about how you approach right. change do you do you kind of get people that have this idea in mind and get them to stand up a working model of it or do you kind of um, Talk, talk to people, and 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 come to some sort of
0: uh, um, yeah. you know,
1: some sort of way forward. Yeah. What, well, anyway, I, I'm, I I'm think, sort of just made that distinction, but I'm wondering what how. Yeah. yeah how would you react to? Well, that? I think I think it
2: kind of goes back to you know um, uh, the incentives, which is you know, is there a carrot or is there a stake which is causing yeah. people to undertake a certain course of action? So. In some ways you know I think the, I think there's a huge massive massive opportunity that the universities are missing, which is you know somebody is going to figure out how to crack this, so how does the university tackle and contribute to addressing complex challenges, and how does it use that, if you like, that strategy to raise enormous amounts of money and to actually gain an enormous freedom from 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 you know the degrees of the nice. lack of degrees yeah. of freedom that currently exists in the system so I think there's a huge opportunity here that the universities, you know, and someone is going to do it. Someone is basically going to go, hang on a minute. You know, we could be tackling 10 challenges, 10 global challenges, and we could raise hundreds of millions of dollars by doing this. And we're going to put our name behind it and we're going to crack it.
1: Yeah, I like I like the sense of that there the incentives are there and, it's, and someone's going to figure it out. Well, we need to kind of bring it to a close, but I want to give you a, a, a moment. How do, how do people find out more about your work, an email address or a URL or both?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can follow me on on Twitter. So it's um, at Zaid Hassan on Twitter, and you know, I'm happy to obviously talk to people as well. So people can email me as well, which is Zaid at social-labs dot com. But yeah, great to be here, and you know, it was, it was a great conversation. So thank you for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, Zaid, it was great, and uh, best of luck to you. I, this is really important stuff, and uh, and I'll look forward to finding out what you what you learn next. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with uh, Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Zaid Hassan, and and help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel as we continue our quest to transform higher education.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.